Hello again, fight fans. Welcome to episode 99 of the Neutral Corner for Boxing Monthly. I am Michael Montero. Man, next week it's going to be 100 episodes. This thing started with me sitting in my living room at my old apartment in a chair with a piece of paper yelling at a camera with a much crappier camera with a much crappier lens and much crappier lighting and audio. We have slowly but surely built this thing up. We got some big announcements coming next week for episode 100, the Halloween episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's get into some news and notes. All right, so you guys know I love to do my polls on Twitter. And Saturday night while I was watching the HBO boxing uh, triple header, I saw Jazreel Corrales' hair. And I was watching the fight with Tiffany and we were trying to figure out what color is his hair. I think Jim Lampley said it was red, which it wasn't. And I know it's normally blonde. It kind of looked like this weird orange thing. So I did a Twitter poll, uh, what color is Jazreel Corrales' hair? And here are the results. Uh, only 174 of you voted. That tells me uh, a lot of you weren't watching the fight. 12% go with burnt orange, 7% apricot, 17% rust, and 64% stupid. Yeah, uh, not a good look. Not a good look, brother. Might want to uh, change it back to the natural thing. Even the blonde looked a little bit better, even though that wasn't a great look. But anyway, okay, real news and notes here. Uh, so a little bit of a buzzkill. Miguel Burchelt is out of that fight with Orlando Salido that was going to take place on December 9th. He claims that he has some inflammation in his right hand. They tried to work with it, but it's a little beat up. I don't know if he needs surgery, but they need resting for the rest of the year. Not going to be able to fight until 2018. Here's the silver lining. HBO still wants to work with that date. They do want to put on a fight. And the promoter's trying to figure out if they could get a Francisco Vargas versus Orlando Salido rematch done for December 9th. You guys remember their first fight, June 2016 at StubHub Center, the fight of the year, one of the best just all-action brawls we've seen in recent years. So if they can make that happen December 9th, yes, both fighters are pretty damn shop-worn and beat up, but that rematch, they're both shop-worn and beat up just enough to where I think that rematch is going to be very, very entertaining. You know, the Burchelt-Salito fight, that looked like it could have been a one-sided beating for Burchelt, uh, just, just beating down Salido. But now you got Vargas and Salido possibly going at it again. Sometimes the best fights are when you get two guys that are a little bit shop-worn and they got something to prove and they put on a really good competitive first fight. I thought Vargas edged it. A lot of people out there thought Salido edged it. These two would like to get in there and prove who is the best between the two of them. I'd love to see that. Other fights, uh, rumors of other fights. If you guys follow Terry Flanagan on Twitter, you see that he's been calling out Jorge Linares. Now, apparently, his people are talking to Linares' people, and they're working on getting something sorted out for early next year. I like that fight a lot. Of course, the fight I want to see, all of you want to see, is Mikey Garcia against Jorge Linares. But Golden Boy Promotions, they're kind of being sticklers with Mikey Garcia and they're demanding a multi-fight deal, whether it's three or four fights, for him to fight any of their guys, whether it's Jorge Linares, Miguel Cotto, whoever. So I don't know if we're gonna get that fight and it's a shame. But in the meantime, 
If we could get Jorge Linares versus Terry Flanagan, I like that fight a lot. Some of the stylistic problems that Luke Campbell brought to the table, I think Flanagan's gonna bring a lot of the same and more. Good height, good range. Uh, I think he's got uh, that toughness in him, that intestinal fortitude that Campbell has. If that fight happens and it goes to the UK, especially early next year, Linares has not been afraid to stamp his passport in the past. I like that matchup a lot. I like that fight a lot. So that would be a good one for quarter one 2018, which already we've got some good things coming up at the beginning of 2018, man. Uh, it's not going to, 2018 is not going to be as good as 2017, but it's going to be pretty freaking good. At least the start is going to be solid. All right, more fights. Sullivan Barrera versus Felix Valera, who is a Dominican fighter, is going to round out the HBO triple header on November 25th. Now, also on that night, we're going to have Jason Sosa versus Robinson Castellanos, a 10-rounder, 130-pound fight, and the return of Sergei Kovalev against Vasyaslav Shabransky, a 10-round, 175-pound fight. This is all from New York. So, that's a nice triple header. That's a very, very nice triple header. And... It could be a preview of a fight we see in 2018 between Sergey Kovalev and Sullivan Barrera, should they both be successful. And all boxing fans would like to see that fight. Sullivan Barrera has turned into one of my favorite fighters. I don't know if you guys follow him on Twitter, but he's a good follow on Twitter. And he was really, really talking some trash about Adonis Stevenson to his face, well, on Twitter to his face, to his profile. Uh, it, it was pretty entertaining. And Sullivan Barrera is one of those guys, some people have questioned whether he wants to fight the best, which I think is ridiculous. He took on Andre Ward when he was still a prospect. He's very willing to take on the best. But some fights have not worked out for him due to contractual money issues and stuff like that. But this is a guy who wants the big fights. And he wants to fight Kovalev. And I think Kovalev obviously isn't scared to fight anybody. He'd fight Barrera too. The money's just got to be right. I think if these two guys both win on November 25th, they should fight early 2018. And Jason Sosa, Robinson Castellanos, I think that's a good quality uh, fight. I think that's a good scrap. HBO in general is finishing strong this year. They really had a big shakeup. And... A lot of people questioned, you know, over the last year or so, they've had a big shakeup at HBO. And a lot of people have questioned their commitment to the sport. Peter Nelson has said time and time again, we're committed to boxing. There's been a lot of rumors about the budget that's been slashed. And it has been slashed. But it's not just the boxing budget. It's HBO sports in general that's been slashed. And there's been less sports programming, period, on HBO. But boxing was their stable, right? That was the major sport they were known for for decades now. But, you know, you had uh, Top Rank leaving and going to um, ESPN. You had uh, other fighters kind of elevating and graduating to pay-per-view. Guys like Gennady Golovkin, uh, Canelo Alvarez did forever ago. But, you know, Golovkin's a, a twice-a-year pay-per-view fighter from here on out. I know you guys don't want to hear that, but that's what he is now. You've had uh, Andre Ward, you know, fighting on pay-per-view. He just retired. So HBO is, you know, they've had to rebuild. And in the short term here, in the second half, particularly the fourth quarter of 2017, they've really put together some nice cards, man. I just talked about possibly we get Salido and Vargas rematch in December. I talked about the November 25th triple header. But remember, guys, uh, 
November 4th, Dimitri Bivol defending his WBA 175-pound title. They're going head-to-head against the Deontay Wilder fight on Showtime that night. And I think they're going to do pretty well because that card has been hurt, that Wilder card, because of the Luis Ortiz situation. So you got that fight, that card coming up. November 11th, Daniel Jacobs and Jarrell Miller are both fighting on a card. Uh, Those two guys, two New York fighters that are good on camera, exciting fighters. They're really building up Daniel Jacobs. They they have a a little special vignette about him that's scheduled to come out soon. I think either November 4th, I think November 4th. Uh, Miguel Cotto is fighting Sadim Ali. Now, a lot of people don't like that fight, but that's December 2nd. Miguel Cotto, you know, he still has a lot of fans. And if it really is his farewell fight, that should do pretty good ratings. Also, Ray Vargas defending his WBC 122-pound title as the co-main on that card. And then we got Billy Joe Saunders and David Lemieux, who just announced that they're fighting just outside of Montreal on December 16th. That's a great fight. And you look at the winners of some of these fights could end up fighting each other, right? Uh, Jarrell Miller is a heavyweight that wants to get in the mix for some of these titles. Obviously, HBO who's working a lot with Eddie Hearn now and has future business planned, they got their eyes on Anthony Joshua, who has a fight coming up on Showtime this weekend that I'll talk about later in this episode. That is his fourth fight in his six-fight deal with Showtime. After those next two fights, 2019 going forward, you have to think HBO is going to make a major push to get Anthony Joshua to be a exclusive to HBO fighter. And if you got guys like Jarrell Miller hanging around, build him up, promote him a little bit, maybe that's a possible future and opponent. In the meantime, there's some fights for Jarrell Miller that make sense on HBO as well if he passes his test November 11th. But Danny Jacobs going up against the winner between Billy Joe Saunders, David Lemieux, or any of those guys getting a crack at the winner between the rematch between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin. All kinds of stuff going on in the middleweight division. Uh, Sergei Derevyanchenko, who now is in line for a crack at the IBF title, whether that becomes vacant or what, you have to figure HBO is going to pay, uh, make some sort of play for him. Maybe that won't happen. It depends on the situation, how it works out. But there's a lot of stuff that can happen there. Future opponents for all these fighters coming up. So I like what they're doing. Peter Nelson has taken a really, really bad situation. And so far... They're building something back up here. I think 2018 is really going to be a bounce back year for HBO. Uh, And look, guys, between HBO, Showtime, and ESPN, who has a strong schedule coming up with the top rank deal the last few months of this year, it feels like there's boxing on every weekend through the end of the year. I mean, this schedule is loaded, and very rarely do you see a fourth quarter schedule this loaded in boxing. This is just great stuff, man. 2017. I'm telling you. Um, You know, I didn't talk about this last week, but the uh, PBC on Fox card recently with Leo Santa Cruz and Abner Mars, who should have been been fighting each other, got awful card, but it did a 1.48 million views. So that is, I believe, up slightly from the July 16th card on Fox, that upstate New York card between Omar Figueroa and Robert Guerrero, which peaked at just over a million. That peaked at just over a million. This card averaged about 1.5 million. That tells you that, number one, Mexican-Americans uh, are still the, the stable and, and the strongest 
fan base in America for boxing. But two, Leo Santa Cruz is still a name, particularly among Mexican-American fans. So I don't love that rating for PBC on Fox, but when you consider everything that they were going up against, when I think you had some NBA stuff going on, you had college football, you had Major League Baseball playoffs, not a bad rating. And it shows that Santa Cruz is still a player. Hopefully, hopefully, cooler heads prevail. Santa Cruz and Mari's rematch early next year. And should Carl Frampton stay in the mix, maybe the winner of that fight, which is probably going to be Santa Cruz again, go up against Frampton. They have a rubber match. If somehow Santa Cruz would be willing to travel over to Frampton's backyard for that kind of fight, that'd be awesome, even if it doesn't happen. More unification, more top fights with these guys with PVC going into next year. They have to start doing that. They are really dying on the vine. Even though this is a solid rating, not where they need to be to try to attract some sort of network deal as these, these time-by deals continue to dry up. So, enough of that. Uh, some more Luis Ortiz information. I feel like I've talked about this guy every week for the last few weeks. The WBA has removed Luis Ortiz from their ratings and suspended him, I believe, for six months for the drug test. Um, that kind of goes a little bit against what the WBC did because they pretty much took him out of the Wilder fight for quote-unquote medical concerns. But I think they're conducting an investigation, or maybe they're not. I don't know what the WBC is doing, but I don't think the WBC is going to suspend him or take him off their ratings or anything like that. I'm not sure what they're doing. It's kind of all over the place. But uh, for the WBA, WBA to remove Ortiz from the ratings, at this point, really, like, who cares? Um, he wasn't going to fight for their title anyway. It's, it's a nice gesture from the WBA, but I don't know. It's kind of an empty gesture, in my opinion. Luis Ortiz has completely screwed his career. I will opine on this one last time, okay? For... Because I've thought about this, and a lot of you guys have asked about this, and I know Victor Conti went on some recent podcasts and went on this rant uh, that this shouldn't have been a fight-canceling uh, test or positive test type of situation because of these blood pressure medications, and it doesn't make sense. I respect Victor, Victor Conti a lot. I've talked with him in person. I've hung out with him and his family in person. They're wonderful people. But guys, you shouldn't deify any one person when it comes to this performance-enhancing drug stuff. It is a science that is all over the place. And we are constantly learning new things. And include me in that. Don't just take my opinion for it. Seek multiple opinions, okay? But we can't just ride or die with one person's opinion. Here's my opinion with the Luis Ortiz situation. Just think about this for a second, okay? Apparently... He was prescribed these blood pressure medications by a medical doctor for a medical condition that he's been suffering with for years. Apparently, it was bad enough to, he, to where he actually had to go to the hospital at one point for high blood pressure. So you're regularly taking medication. You're prescribed this. You have the doctor's note. You have all that stuff. It totally checks out. You're about to fight for a world title. Life-changing money. Career-changing opportunity. This is what you defected from Cuba for. This is what you went through all that drama, getting on a raft and doing what you had to do to get out of that communist country. This is what all the suffering, all the punches in your face, all the sacrifice you've made is going to culminate in this one 
opportunity against Deontay Wilder for this world title. Should you win this fight, it opens the floodgates to maybe an eight-figure payday with Anthony Joshua over in the UK. And you don't disclose on your medical form that you're taking medication that a doctor prescribed to you years ago for a condition that puts you in the hospital as recently as this year, simple medications that you've been taking every day for several years now. Guys, that doesn't make sense. So I don't care to hear the excuses. Luis Ortiz, to not disclose he was taking blood pressure meds, knowing what was at stake, what was on the line. If you got nothing to hide, you disclose that information. How many times have you gone to the doctor and the first thing they ask you, are you allergic to any medication? Are you taking any medication right now? Right? It's the first thing. Any of you guys who have ever competed in any sport at any level, whether it's amateur level, high school, college, professional, whatever, and you filled out medical forms, you get physicals, right? If you played football, basketball, baseball, whatever, you had to go to the doctor. You had to get physicals to take to your coach. What did they ask you? What medications are you taking? Have you had any surgeries? What uh, medical conditions do you have? Medical history form, all that stuff, right? When you sign up at a new dentist, they ask you this information. At any new doctor's office, you get that medical questionnaire. It's the first thing you fill out. I just, guys, the Luis Ortiz thing looks like a duck. It sounds like a duck. So I don't care to hear anything about him anymore. Be gone with you. Let's get into the review of what took place around the world last week in the boxing ring. Thursday, October 19th, it was another Golden Boy Promotions on ESPN2 card in Las Vegas. And guys, look, I wasn't particularly excited about this card. I found something else to do Thursday night. I didn't even really watch it. I've seen a highlights package sent to me, but Gabriel Rosado wins a TKO 6 over Glenn Tapia, who he dropped in the sixth round, and it just looked bad. It just looked bad. You compare these two fighters and their trajectory, and I know going in, both guys have lost a lot more than they've won in their last five, six, seven, eight, nine fights. But Rosado still, you, you can see, has a little bit of juice left. He's not a world beater. He's a fringe contender. I could see him fighting on from here. Glenn Tapia, on the other hand, has now lost four in a row and he's been KO'd in three of them. He did, he survived against Jason Quigley in March when they fought, but Quigley broke his hand in the second round. I can't remember if it was the right hand, his power hand or his left hand, but he broke his hand in the second round. And he still was landing some hard shots on Tapia. And didn't stop him in that fight, but probably, we, we can assume probably would have if he wouldn't have broke his hand. So Tapia's lost four in a row, been brutally KO'd, not responding to punches the right way. A couple of you have asked me on Twitter and, and I think on Facebook and stuff, how can we get Glenn Tapia to not fight again? Guys, the only way you can fight back or make your presence heard is first of all, you can hit them up on Twitter. You can hit up Golden Boy Promotions on Twitter. You can hit up Team Tapia on social media. Let them know how you feel. But you can also, again, fight with your wallet. Don't go to any fight card that he's on. Don't watch any fight card that he's on. That's really all you can do. At this point, it's hard because a fighter comes to a promoter and says, I want to fight. 
A promoter needs to fill dates, especially a big promoter like Golden Boy. And a lot of times they need fighters. They need guys who can step in, who are eager to step in. So many fighters are flaky. They miss weight. They pop on you know, drug tests, whatever it is. You can't depend on them. Tapia is a guy that makes weight and shows up and wants to fight. So it's hard for the promoter to say no if the guy wants to do it because you know he's going to go with somebody else. It takes somebody on Tapia's team or his family to get in his ear and tell him that that's it. So I don't know. We'll probably see him fight on again, but I hope not because it's going to end badly with this guy. For Rosado, you know, look, he, he moves on to uh, possibly being another televised fight next year. And he's earned it. But is he going to fight for a world title or anything like that anytime soon? No. No. He, he is what he is, right? Okay. Skipping to Saturday, October 21st in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Ryan Burnett puts the world on notice, the boxing world on notice, wins a unanimous decision over Zanat Zakianov, unifies the IBF and WBA super 118-pound titles, the Bantamweight titles. So now... He's, look, this kid was homeless, I think, five years ago, living in a car with his father, had absolutely nothing to his name, has really risen from absolute nothing, from absolutely nothing to being the unified Bantamweight champion of the world, and he's just 25 years old. He's 18-0 with nine knockouts, went pro in 2013, stepped up his opposition this year in 2017. And really show that he's for real. He had a layup in February. He's had three fights this year. His February fight, I only think, was like an eight-rounder. It was a layup. But he went 24 good rounds with Lee Haskins in June and Zakayanov last Saturday. And he won about 20 of them. So a fighter at this stage of his career has been fighting professionally about three, four years. Um, this is how you want to step him up. And this is a guy who is a major player now in the Bantamweight division. Do I think he's the top Bantamweight? I'm not willing to go there quite yet. Look, you got Luis Neri, the Mexican, who won the WBC title when he KO'd Shinsuke Yamanaka back in August. Yamanaka's still a player. You got the Yorkshire fighter, Jamie McDonnell, who has the WBA regular title. He has a rematch with Laborio Solis November 4th on that Dimitri Bivol card in Monte Carlo that I told you guys about earlier in this episode. So personally, I think what makes a lot of sense is since Jamie McDonnell has the WBA regular and Ryan Burnett has the WBA super, those two, and they're both from the same part of the world, those two should dance together next year if McDonnell is successful against Solis in their rematch. He beat him earlier this year. If that could happen... That's a big fight over there. That's a big fight in the UK if it goes down over there. Meanwhile, uh, Neri, Yamanaka, those other guys, it'll be interesting to see what they do. And I think Burnett has a bright future. I want to say, I can't remember the exact number. It was either 7,000 or it might have been over 10,000 fans that were in the arena to watch that fight, the Burnett-Zakayana fight. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I want to say it was 10,000. For a kid at this point with just you know, 18, his 18th professional fight, he's a bantamweight to be drawing that kind of crowd in his homeland. He's, he's a brand. He's a brand already. And I'm telling you, if that McDonald fight can happen early next year, 
And I, at this point, I would favor Burnett in that fight. At that point, the kid's a bona fide star over there. And then he can start luring fighters like a Lewis Neri, should they want to unify the division even further, to go over to the UK where it makes dollars and it makes sense. So, man, that opened up the HBO triple header uh, this Saturday. And that was the best fight of the triple header. I'm going to get to that in a second, but before I want to talk about the rest of that triple header, I wanted to get to this cruiserweight fight, the World Boxing Super Series that took place at Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, where Marat Gassiev iced Christoph Vlodiercek. I think I'm pronouncing it right. I was saying Vlodiercek last week, and I think it's Vlodiercek. Polish fans, Polish listeners, let me know if I'm getting that right. Uh, KO3 over Christoph Vlodiercek, and Gassiev defends his IBF Cruiserweight title for the first time. He fights Unier Dortikos, who has the WBA title, next in the uh, semifinal round early next year. Love that fight. That is probably the best matchup, at least thus far, in the entire tournament. I love that fight. And then remember, in the super middleweight tournament, we're going to get George Groves versus Chris Eubank, which I think is the best matchup of that tournament to date. So we got some good stuff to look forward to in that tournament. But uh, look, a lot of people are saying Dortikos is going to embarrass Gassiev because Gassiev looked, Gassiev's feet are slow. His body's very stiff. He doesn't, he's not very fluid, doesn't move his head at all. Uh, really not much movement in the waist, in the hips at all. He moves his hands re relatively fast. Um, his punches come out pretty fast. And that's because his technique is good. Always on balance. He's trained up at the Big Bear Gym at the Summit uh, with, with Abel Sanchez, Gennady Golovkin, that whole crew. And one thing Abel gets his fighters to do, and they, it, it's muscle memory. They, they go over the same combination, the same motion, over and over. His guys, Abel Sanchez fighters, are always on balance, and they always punch with leverage. And uh, Gassiev is no exception to that. He might be pound for pound the strongest, I'm talking just puncher, just strongest man in all of boxing right now. This guy, whatever he hits, he hurts. He just kind of followed Vlodiercek around the ring in the first couple rounds. It landed an occasional jab, was pawing with some right hands, nothing hard. But in the third round, he caught him on the ropes. Landed, I think, an uppercut that got Vlodiercek's arms to come up. And then, boom, went right to the ribs, ended the fight. It was a legitimate KO, not a TKO. Vlodiercek could not beat the 10 count. Legitimate KO. But a lot of people are saying Dortikos is going to outbox Gassiev in their fight. And I'm saying, not so fast. Dortikos looked great in his fight last month against Dmitry Kudryashov. But... That dude walks like he's through some, you know, like, like he's in cement, okay? Kudryashov is so slow and uncoordinated, he makes Gassiev look like Pernell Whitaker. So, I do think Dortikos is going to give Gassiev a lot of problems. And I see him outboxing Gassiev early on in that fight. But, Gassiev, who needs to continue to work on cutting off the ring, his pressure... And that power when he does land, if he punches arms, if he punches shoulders, hits whatever he can hit, might slow down Dortico's and he might get a stoppage late in that fight. But man, that one right now, I need to think about it. 
But that's 50-50. I can't wait to see Gassiev Dortico's early next year. And now we go to the Turning Stone Resort and Casino in Verona, New York for the rest of that HBO triple header I was talking about. And starting with that uh, co-main between Demetrius Andrade and Alantes Fox. This thing went all 12. Brutally, brutally boring fight. And I turned this fight off several times and just clicked that. There were some movies on the other HBOs. You know, there's like 10 different HBOs. There were some movies on and stuff that I clicked on. I just, it was very, very difficult to watch this fight. It was Andre's premiere or his debut, I should say, in, in the middleweight division, but not his HBO debut. I believe he's fought on HBO before. Uh, he's been fighting on Showtime more recently. But anyway, he... He hurt Fox early in the fight. Fox went defensive. Fox is listed as six foot five. I have no idea how that guy makes middleweight. That's insane. Technically, Andre was uh, knocked or ruled knocked down in the seventh round, but it was clearly a slip, and the referee missed it, which happens. These things happen, but this is just another example of why we desperately need to use instant replay in boxing. Guys, I've talked about this a zillion times. The replay that you saw, if those of you who actually kept watching the fight into the seventh round, when the HBO guys were talking between the seventh and eighth round and showing the replay, showing that it was a slip, you know, Andre Ward was, was opining, oh, this, this is clearly a slip, and the ref missed it. If the HBO guys who are sitting right by the ring can see that on their little monitor, there's no reason that the referee can't step down outside the ring right there and look at the monitor as well in that same time span because it's instantly available and determine, oop, that was a mistake, get back up in the ring and make a ruling to all three judges who are sitting on their side of the ring. You got the commentators and the press on one side, right? And then you got the three judges on the other three sides of the ring and commission officials and stuff around the ring. It's all right there. Monitors, all of it, right there. The referee could step down outside of the ring, very, very simple, look at the monitor, get back up and motion to all three judges, just like when judges, or I'm sorry, when refs say, one point, he headbutted the guy, you know, if a fighter headbutts someone, minus one point, and then he turns to the other judge, minus one point, turns to the third judge, minus one point, right? Same thing here, where you say, my mistake, that was not a knockdown. That was a slip. And you say it to all three judges, adjust your scorecards accordingly. Boom. Problem solved. I don't know why we don't do this in boxing. It's so simple. It would, do, it would not delay the fight one second. We already have the 60 seconds to do the review. We already have the technology. The commentators always do it. You guys at home always do it, right? Because we see the replay. Why can't the ref step down five feet away and do this? It, it just baffles the mind. But anyway, it didn't matter in this fight because Andre basically shut Fox out. Um, amazingly, one judge, I think it was Don Ackerman, scored at 116-111 for Andre. That means he gave Fox four rounds somehow. I, I don't know. But um, Look, okay, let's talk about Demetrius Andre. And look, it's hard to get rid of a guy that's fighting scared, particularly when he's bigger than you or a lot smaller than you. Because smaller guys, they can shell up. You have to punch down in them. It's awkward. 
That's even harder. Fighting a guy who's a little taller than you, you can punch up at him. It's easier to hit a guy who's being defensive, who's taller than you, because there's a bigger target there. It's actually harder to get rid of a guy who's smaller than you and being defensive. Andre is several classes above Fox and should have got him out of there. And the fact that he didn't is just shame on him. He basically comes into fights with the exact same mentality as Arislandi Lara. And I made some funny tweets Saturday about that and you guys enjoyed them. Arislandi Lara actually tweeted about the fight, about how bad it was. And I retweeted him. I had to give Lara some credit for being entertaining on Twitter. Some of these Cuban guys aren't the most entertaining in the ring, but they're pretty damn funny on Twitter. Anyway, Andre, 29 years old, six foot one, great size for a middleweight. He's a southpaw, 73 inch reach. He's got the size, the reach, athleticism. He could fight orthodox or southpaw, but he prefers southpaw. He went pro in 2008. Only 25 professional fights in almost a decade. He fought once in 2014, once in 2015, once in 2016. I think he's fought twice this year, so that's pretty active for him. But it was the 154-pound title fight over in Germany, I think, and now this one. He has built up absolutely no fan base. I remember last year when Charlo knocked out J-Rock Williams here in L.A., Andre was there and crashed the post-fight press conference and talked a bunch of trash to Charlo before he moved up to middleweight. Those two are at middleweight now, but one guy has a three-fight deal with HBO, that's Andre, and one guy fights pretty much exclusively on Showtime. So I don't think they're going to fight each other. That's the fight I'd like to see happen. But Andre has done more talking than he has fighting recently. He is 25-0 with 16 knockouts, but man, style-wise... He's got to be in there with a guy who's going to constantly pressure him and bring the fight to him, or he's going to be horribly boring to watch. He did himself no favors with this performance, and he had absolutely nothing coming back at him. He should have went out there and went for broke in the final rounds and tried to get this guy out of there. It's going to cost him in the future, man. Like I said, three-fight deal with HBO, tons of potential. He squandered his career to this point. I once thought, that he had the most potential of all those guys coming up at junior middleweight, including the Charlos. I'm talking three, four, five years ago. I thought, I looked at him several years ago and thought, man, this guy stylistically is going to be the guy that's going to give Gennady Golovkin fits, as I saw him coming up. Because you could tell Golovkin was going to take over the middleweights. But I was like, this guy at 154, Andre, he's going to be too big for that division. He's going to move to 160, and he's going to give Golovkin his toughest challenge. You know what? I don't think so anymore. Right now, he's on the outside looking in at 160 pounds, and he totally screwed himself a couple years back when he signed with Rock Nation Sports. Where are they now, right? Just look at the way they handled that Daniel Franco situation. You guys all saw my tweet about that, Daniel Franco's tweet. Um, Again, I talked about the Saunders Lemieux winner. I talked about Sergei Derevyanchenko. Man, they're all going to try to go for the Canelo Golovkin 2 winner. So what's next for Andre? Well, Daniel Jacobs is fighting on HBO now. I wouldn't mind seeing a fight between Daniel Jacobs and Demetrius Andre. Let's see that. That makes the most sense. And in fact, HBO sent out a poll on Twitter. I retweeted it. I was a little sarcastic with my response, but I tweeted it out, retweeted it. 
who would you like to see him fight next? And of course, there was Triple G, there was Canelo. I can't remember. I think David Lemieux on there, and then Danny Jacobs. Well, we know what those first three fighters are going to be doing coming up. And I think that leaves Daniel Jacobs. And stylistically, I think Jacobs and Andre, uh, maybe not the best fight in the world, but Jacobs is building up somewhat of a profile in New York. You could put that fight on there. I think he'd do okay. Um, I don't want to see Andre in there with anybody else right now. I'd love to see him against Charlo, but it's not going to happen. So that rounded out. Oh, you know what? I didn't even talk about the main event. What am I doing? That's how ugly that fight was. It made me forget about the main event. Not that the main event was that much better, but Alberto Machado closes the show in exciting fashion, an exciting finish to this one, with a KO8 over Jazreel Corrales to win the vacant WBA 130-pound title. It was a title that Corrales held, but he came in overweight, lost it on the scale, and so the title became vacant. For Corrales, Jazreel Corrales, and I made the funny poll about his hair later, but all, all jokes aside, didn't even appear like he tried to make weight, right? Now, sometimes when the guy doesn't even try to make weight or doesn't even come close, you think, man, he just can't. He killed himself. He grew out of the, the division, and he'll come in the fight looking like a skeleton. He'll look like a shell of himself. That wasn't Corrales. He was moving and jumping and shucking and jiving just like he always does with that awkward, herky-jerky stuff he does. He didn't look drained at all. It just looked like him and his team said, we can't make 130. We're just not even going to try. We'll move to 135 for our next fight. But we just we ain't going to tell our opponent. I hate when fighters do that. And the WBC did the right thing. I'm sorry, WBA did the right thing in stripping him but there needs to be some sort of penalty. And it's up to the promoters to work this stuff into contracts to do a better job of that. If you had an incentive as a fighter, it's like, look, I better make weight. If I don't make weight, first of all, I'm getting stripped of my title. Second of all, I'm giving up 20% of my purse to my opponent. When there's something like that written in your contract, you try a little harder to make weight. So to me, it looked like Corrales didn't even try to. Now he's a lightweight. Um, this is why I like the WBC's 30-day and 7-day weigh-in rule. So that you, the opponent at least gets an idea that, hey, man, this, this guy is way overweight. This guy might not come in on weight. And you could start game planning for that and start preparing yourself for that. That's why the WBC, for all the crap I give them, I like some of these rules they have. I also like the IBF rehydration rule, but there's, uh, there's some issues with it. And I think I'll talk about that in a rant video coming up. I have several ideas for rant videos that are just kind of on deck, and I just got to get to them. Um, this also is an idea that's come up recently. You know, maybe some random weigh-ins. Like we have random drug testing for fighters. Maybe we need random weigh-ins. Look, if you're rated as a cruiserweight, I don't care if you only fight once in a year. Should you be weighing 250 pounds at any point? You're rated as a cruiserweight. Maybe mandatory 90-day weigh-in checks for the top 10 rated fighters in the division, something like that. I don't know. If you hold a title, maybe you should have to weigh within 10% or 20% tops of that division's weight at any point in the year 
or else why are you holding that world title? You're supposed to be the middleweight champ. Why are you walking around at 185 pounds? And all that comes back to performance-enhancing drugs, guys, because a lot, dare I say most, of the PEDs out there now are to help these dudes cut weight. So talk about a lot more of that in the future. But this fight was interesting because Corrales was up after seven rounds. The judges had him up 67-65 and 68-64 twice, but he got floored by a great counterpunch from Machado in the seventh round. I want to say it was a... Uh, it was a straight left hand, and it was a nice, short, compact punch. Corrales was down. He did beat the count. He got up at nine. The ref waved it off. I felt like it may have been a somewhat premature stoppage, but the writing was on the wall. What I found interesting was after this fight, Machado was, or I'm sorry, not Machado, but Corrales was yelling to Max Kellerman while he was interviewing Machado about wanting a rematch. And it's like, dude, you don't deserve one. You didn't even make weight. You, you lost any privilege or anything you had at that point. And then you just got knocked out. So stop complaining about a rematch or the stoppage or anything like that. As far as I'm concerned, that was just karma having its way there. For Machado, not the best guy fundamentally. Very rugged. Was clearly losing this fight. It was even dominated in spots and looked downright amateurish in spots. But he's now 19-0 with 16 knockouts. He's 27 years old. This was his first big step up in opposition. So there's a lot there that he had to kind of learn on the job. That power, though, game-changing power, could serve him well in future fights. Puerto Rico now has a titleist. That's important. The 130-pound division has a lot of players, a lot of possible fights. If this guy's handlers are smart... They'll have a building type of first defense in Puerto Rico, which that island's been devastated with, you know, all, all the uh, storms and everything. The infrastructure there is shot. You know, he really is an inspiration. And he talked a lot about that in the lead up to this fight for that island. I think that they should do a, a voluntary defense early next year in Puerto Rico, if it's at all possible with the infrastructure there against a top 15 rated opponent, but a guy that will give him rounds that they can iron out some of the wrinkles in his game, okay? Because there's a lot of holes there. Fill some of those gaps. Work on some stuff. I don't know how much longer Machado can make 130 pounds. I don't know how much longer he's going to have this title. But as long as he can make 130, build this guy up a little bit, maybe swell him up to 135 after that, where I think he'll be... Um, he, I think he'll carry that power, and I think he'll be a little more steady and sturdy on his feet. Okay, one more fight to talk about last weekend, and then we'll get into the preview for what's coming up this week. Sunday, October 22nd in Japan. And guys, I totally dropped the ball in my preview show last week. I totally just forgot about this one, and I had it on my notes. I just didn't go over it. The rematch between Ryota Murata, who clearly beat Hassam Dadam earlier this year, and Dadam, who came into this fight holding the WBA regular middleweight title. The real champion, obviously, is Gennady Golovkin. Murata improves to 13-1 and 10 knockouts, winning a retirement, seven-round retirement, technically. It really was 
a stoppage. He just kind of dominated from the opening bell and beat down Ndam, and his corner stopped it. They basically told the ref in between the seventh and eighth rounds that, um, you know, we can't go anymore. We got nothing. So they called off the fight. Murata was up 70-63, to 69-64, 68-65 at the time of the stoppage. He is now the first Japanese Olympic medalist to win a world title as a pro. So the first Japanese boxer to win an Olympic medal in the amateurs and a world title in the pros. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because it shows that there's an amateur system now in Japan that's getting results in the amateur ranks and now it's translating to the professional ranks. That's a growing market over there in boxing. If you're not watching some of these young Japanese fighters in the lower weight divisions, you're missing out on some good stuff. But this is big because this is a middleweight. If we start getting some bigger Japanese fighters, welterweights, middleweights, maybe even bigger than that, that's great for the sport of boxing. And it's coming with the Chinese fighters. I've been telling you guys that forever. There's going to be more and more of these Chinese fighters, and they're going to continue to get bigger as well. When you think Chinese, Japanese fighters, you think bantamweights, flyweights, right? I'm telling you, over the next decade or so, you're going to start seeing welterweights. You're going to start seeing middleweights. Now, do I think these guys are going to be at the elite level quite yet? No. Do I think Barada's an elite level middleweight yet? No. I don't think he's ready to compete with the Golovkins, the Canelos, the Jacobs, the Charlos, even uh, Lemieux, Saunders, those kinds of guys. But he's a top 10 middleweight. And you know what? I'm going to take it back. I think he's ready to compete with guys like maybe Lemieux, maybe Saunders. Maybe he's ready to compete. But that elite level, that top two, three fighters in the middleweight division, not quite there. And I don't know if he's ever going to be there. But he has a title now. And of course, we know Golovkin's the real champion. We know if Murata fought Golovkin, he'd get iced. So I don't see that fight happening anytime soon. I see top rank building up a brand over in Japan. And I see him defending that regular WBA title against some of the top 15 or so rated fighters toward the lower end of that top 15. But then eventually, they're going to step up again. And they're going to go against somebody like a Saunders or a Lemieux, somebody in that range. And it'll be interesting to see if Murata, who I, I have seen improvement in as a pro. I saw him for the first time fight. I want to say it was in Vegas. It might have been on the Bradley Rios card. Don't quote me on that, but it might have been the Bradley Rios card in Las Vegas a couple years back. When I saw him, I didn't see much. I didn't, I didn't think this guy had much potential. But he's developed. He's gotten better. And the difference between this fight with Nadam and the first fight, he started that first fight cautious. He looked a little tentative. Look, I still think he won, but it took him a lot longer to get going. And that was his first step up in opposition. He came into this fight guns blazing, and he started going to the body. And it was the body shots that actually stopped Nadam. Because Nadam's been dropped 5,000 times to the head, but he always gets up. He's a tough guy. But Murata went to the body and wore him down and just physically beat the guy down. And that's how I won this fight. Very impressive performance. I want to see more of him. He's going to be over there in Japan. Hopefully, Bob Arum continues to build this guy up the right way. And maybe he's going to keep improving. Maybe we got a real player here over the next two or three years. We'll find out. 
but good stuff for Japanese boxing fans. Good stuff. All right, that's it. Oh, actually, real quick, also on that card, Ken Shiro defends his WBC 108-pound title, and Daigo Higa defends his WBC 112-pound title. So it was a good night for Japanese boxing all around. That's it with the review. Let's get into the preview of what's coming up this week. All right, this Friday, October 27th, it is the World Boxing Super Series Super Middleweight Division. I believe this is the last quarterfinals match, and I think they've all been on Saturday. This one's on a Friday. Over in Schwerin, Germany, Jorgen Brommer versus Rob Brandt. Brandt is the only American in the entire tournament, and the winner of this fight will fight Callum Smith early next year in the semifinals. Uh, Brandt, let's stick with him, 22-0, 15 knockouts, went pro in 2012, has fought as light as 152 pounds, but in the amateurs, he fought at over 180 pounds at one point. So he's been all over the place on the weight scale, uh, but he fought at 152 pounds in 2013. He's been fighting as a middleweight, moving up in weight for this fight and making a big leap in opposition, at least on paper, in this fight. Now, Brommer, 48-3, 35 KOs. He's been stopped once as well. He's a southpaw, has some tricky little crafty little skills about him. Uh, doesn't really do anything special, and a lot of his KOs really weren't one-punch concussive-type knockouts. Um, 5 foot 11 pro debut in 2013 so this guy went pro 13 years before brant did that tells you the difference here in age and wear and tear he's moving down from 175 pounds he's been fighting as a light heavyweight since 2008 so what's harder to do here guys move up in weight when you're a younger guy or move down in weight when you're an older guy Right? Move down in weight when you're the older guy. For, for Brommer, he's been fighting as a light heavyweight for almost a decade, moving down to super middleweight. I think that's going to hurt him. Brandt, he is fighting in Germany in this guy's backyard. He's making a big leap in opposition. He's moving up in weight. Uh, so he's going to start cautious, but I like him to win this fight and go to fight Callum Smith in the UK early next year and keep hope alive for the Americans in the World Boxing Super Series. I don't know what the betting odds are in this fight. I don't, know, I don't know who's the favorite. I would imagine, because it's a German fighter who's more known fighting in Germany, that Brommer would be the favorite. If he is indeed the favorite, I'm taking the upset special in this one. I like Rob Brandt to pull a decision possibly split decision we might see some some you know effery i won't say the word some blankery from the judges we might see one guy give it wide to brommer and the other two give it wide to brant or something like that but i do think brant should come out of here with a decision victory now on saturday in the principality stadium in cardiff wales over seventy thousand fans are going to watch Anthony Joshua defend his heavyweight titles against Carlos Takam. And as I mentioned before, this is the fourth fight of the six-fight Showtime deal. The HBO pay-per-view people, they're going to be taking a close look. They want in on that business, but that's well over a year down the road. For now, for Joshua, look, he did over 90,000 fans, 90,000 butts in seats in London against Vladimir Klitschko in April. Now, 
70,000 fans in Cardiff, Wales for what was going to be Kubrat Pulev and now is Carlos Takem. So we talk about Canelo Alvarez being the biggest star in boxing as far as revenue generating, bringing in that Vegas money with the Wales. Okay, that's true. But I think AJ has proven himself to be the biggest ticket seller in boxing right now. So in that respect, he's the biggest star. Now, uh, Pulev pulled out of this fight because of injury. And a lot of you out there were upset that Carlos Takam was, he got the bill. Because you wanted someone like Dillian White or maybe even Anthony Josh, or not Anthony Josh, Deontay Wilder, somebody like that. But guys, this was an IBF mandatory fight. So it was on the IBF to name their most highest, the next highest rated contender, and that was Takam. So look, Kubrat Pulev, and I talked about this last week in the news and notes section, he is bigger, stronger, definitely a harder hitter than Takam, and posed a stylistic challenge for Joshua in that respect, but he has absolutely no defense, no head movement, would have been a sitting duck for right hands. And for, for that, you know, considering all that, I think he would have went three or four rounds with Joshua. It, it would have been slightly interesting because maybe he could have caught AJ with the right hand and got something done with that. But short of that, that was just going to be the first big shot AJ landed. Boom. The fight was going to be essentially over. You compare that to Carlos Takam, who doesn't have the power, the size, the strength that Kubrat Pulev has, but has the defensive abilities he doesn't have. He's a shorter guy, more compact. As I said earlier in this episode, it's harder to fight a defensive fighter who's shorter than you than a defensive-minded fighter who's taller than you. It's harder to hurt a little guy because they can duck and they can do cute little things defensively. Do I think Takem's going to be able to do that for 12 rounds? No. I think that Joshua obviously is going to stop him. But I think this thing could go twice as many rounds as it would have went with Pulev. Don't be surprised if this fight goes six, seven, eight rounds. Seriously, don't. It's going to be a one-sided type of fight. It's just going to be AJ following Takem around the ring and punching and Takem covering up. But... I do think it's going to go more rounds. And look, AJ could use the rounds. So let's see if he works on some stuff in there. Instead of just going out and trying to just blitzkrieg this guy and get him out of there, let's see him work on some stuff. Let's see him work more on the jab, some head movement. Uh, let's see him try to set traps to try to get Takem to come to him. It'd be interesting to see what kind of stuff him and his team have worked on. Because AJ does seem to be improving with every fight. It's also going to be interesting to see how he looks after that Klitschko fight which had to be a massive confidence builder. You go through a fight like that where you have to get up off the canvas to come back and win a fight like that against the former champ, an all-time great heavyweight, man, that's got to be a huge confidence builder. So he might just come out and annihilate Takam. Either way, I'm going to be interested to see this one. Um, another thing about Takam, you know, he's been more active than Pulev. So I think that's going to serve him well too. He's fought a couple times this year. Also on this card, Dillian White versus Robert Hellenius for the WBC silver title, which is basically the WBC mandatory. So the winner of that fight will eventually fight De the winner between Deontay Wilder and Berman Stavern, which is going to be Deontay Wilder. So early next year, we're going to get a Deontay Wilder-Dillian White fight probably, and that's going to be on Showtime. 
What would be interesting is if who who Anthony Joshua fights, right? Um, actually, you know, let's not forget there's Dominic Brazil too, who I think is going to be the mandatory. So let me step back here. There's the silver title, and then there's the WBC mandatory. So maybe for Wilder, he's going to get uh, Brazil and then Dillian White. And that's assuming Brazil beats Eric Molina, which we think he will. But so maybe Deontay Wilder's 2018 is carved out for him already. I don't know. That remains to be seen. But for Joshua, where does he fit in on all this? Now, does White really care about his WBC silver title? Does he prefer if he gets Wilder or AJ? I don't know. I, for the, obviously, you guys know I favor Dillian White over Robert Hellanius. Hellanius might upset the party, though. Who knows? Hellanius, five, six, seven years ago, looked like a really interesting heavyweight prospect. He's looked like crap lately, and I do favor White. But if Hellanius wins, he could really upset things. But it'll be interesting to see what Eddie Hearn, assuming, okay, let's assume, AJ wins, Dillian White wins, and Deontay Wilder, Dominic Brazil both win. They're fighting next, next week. It'll be interesting to see what Eddie Hearn does with all this. A lot of you have been asking, does Eddie Hearn want to make a fight between Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua next year? Or would he like to put Dillian White, somebody like that, in there with Deontay Wilder first? What would be the upside of that? Here's the upside. Because you've heard... I know that um, Eddie Hearn made offers to Deontay Wilder to fight Dillian White already. They've talked about it. Here's what I think is going to happen. I do think we'll see a Deontay Wilder-Dillian White fight next year at some point. Maybe the end of next year. I don't think we're going to get Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua next year. I don't see it happening. If, if... Dillian White, and again, this is assuming all these guys keep winning. If Dillian White can beat Deontay Wilder next year and get that WBC title, then if you're Eddie Hearn, you've got a unification match that's all UK. And you could bring that back to Wembley and it'd be huge because AJ would have two titles. Dillian White would have one title. They both fought once already. White was able to rock Joshua, right? That would be massive. And, or, if Deontay Wilder beats Dillian White, that's further exposure for Deontay Wilder against a British fighter with the British fan base. So it, then, suddenly, the big, big fight between Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua, I think, is even bigger because they both fought Dillian White and both beat him. Imagine, if you will, just putting it out there, Deontay Wilder beats Dominic Brazil early next year. And then he fights Dillian White in the summer or fall of next year. Let's just say he travels to the UK. Deontay Wilder travels to the UK, fights Dillian White over there, makes career-changing money for him, right? Life-changing money, more money than he's ever made. It does a big, big crowd over there. And he beats Dillian White in decisive, dominant fashion without getting caught, without getting buzzed the way Anthony Joshua was against Dillian White. Now he's got bragging rights. 
right? Now I can say, I beat, it took you X amount of rounds to knock this guy out. I did it in half the amount of rounds. This guy budged you. He didn't lay a finger on me. Suddenly, the Wilder-Joshua fight becomes that much bigger. Either way, Eddie Hearn wins in this scenario. If Dillian White takes care of business against Robert Hellenius and he can secure a fight between Wilder after he takes care of Stavern and uh, Brazil, if they could do that late next year. I just think that makes more sense to delay that AJ fight in Wilder to May of 2019. I know that's not what you guys want to hear, but I think that's the way it could play out if everybody wins and does what they're supposed to do. All right, also on this card, Khalid Yafai going up against Sho Ishida to defend his WBA 115-pound title. That should be a fun little scrap. Let's see what Khalid's been working on and see if he's improved any since his last time out. All right, guys, that's it for this week, man. Let me know what you think. Like, comment, share, subscribe. Next week, episode 100 is going to be a lot of fun. I'm Michael Montero. I'll see you at the fights.